0: This message comes from Apple Card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA member FDIC. Terms apply. Support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself... What will you create today?
1: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Adel Rodriguez about his celebrated illustrations of
2: Trump. You don't appease fascists. You really do confront it uh, as strongly as possible. And that's what I, what I want to do with that cover. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: In April 1980, several hundred Cubans, fed up with a bleak economy, stormed the Peruvian embassy in Havana, demanding asylum. And over the next few days, their numbers grew to over 10,000. In response, Fidel Castro opened the port of Mariel to anyone wishing to leave Cuba. And they could, as long as they could arrange, to be picked up by boat. Family and friends in the United States quickly organized and sent hundreds of boats from Florida in what became known as the Mariel Boat Lift. 120,000 people made it out of Cuba, among them a nine-year-old boy named Adele Rodriguez. This nine-year-old boy went on to become one of the most celebrated illustrators in the United States. And today, we're going to talk about that and his extraordinary life. Adele Rodriguez, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Until yesterday, I was having a conversation with the designer, James Victory. And when I told him I was interviewing you today, he called you the most dangerous man in the world. <laughs> and I was wondering what you might think of that.
2: Huh? No, I'm sure there's a lot more dangerous people than me, but uh, I don't mind that reputation. I'm fine with that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about your early origins and then talk about why you're so dangerous. You grew up in El Gabriel, a small rural town outside Havana, Cuba. Your family had to work to find food and basic supplies every day. You even made your own toys to play with. What was that all like for you?
2: It was just life. We never thought uh, we were poor or... It was just life. You woke up and you made your toys, and you uh, you went out into the countryside and cut down some sugarcane and ate it for lunch. And it was actually a lot of fun. Uh, I didn't really think much of it, um, but you know my parents were aware of what was going on because they had lived before the revolution uh, when things were a little bit more put together. There was there were a lot more a um, lot more food. And um, there wasn't that much spying by the the government. They weren't uh, getting oppressed. So um, they're the ones that were um, kind of looking at me and my sister and trying to figure out what was gonna happen to us in the future. So they were trying to look ahead a little bit. They knew that uh, at some point I'd have to go into the military. When I was about 16 or 17, you have to um, go into the military. And at that time, they were sending kids to Angola and to Africa to fight wars in Central America. And uh my father didn't want me to fight for something that he didn't really really believe in, and we were already kind of getting indoctrinated in school, doing chants and things like that and uh And at some point they they'd start turning the the kids on on their parents and and uh, snitching and things like that. so they could tell something was up, and they they're the ones that got concerned and wanted to get us out but to me it was uh it was just a lot of fun it was really i I loved my time in Cuba.
0: What kind of toys were you making?
2: Oh, um, we would make, you know, guns, which is what boys like to make. <laughs> um, but guns out of, uh, out of wood uh, with, you know, the bullets were, were bottle caps, uh, slingshots. Um, you know, the, the one thing is that it, it, at a very young age, I was just working with my hands all the time. And uh, my entire life, I've just been making things with my hands.
0: You began to show a talent for drawing while sketching at your aunt's pharmacy in Cuba. What motivated you to want to draw there?
2: Paper. <laughs> it's, so she where, had the it's where she it's where she had paper she had paper and she had pencils, and that's the one place where I found them. you know my, my parents didn't didn't really have paper at the house, so I would just go there and and I guess she wanted to keep me busy in, in the desk in the back of the pharmacy, so she'd just give me paper and pencils and I would just start drawing uh, mo- I remember mostly drawing tanks that was, I was fascinated by by military tanks at the time.
0: What did your family think of your drawing back then?
2: Uh, my family is, I love them and they're wonderful, but they're very funny. It's, it's really not, it, you're a kid doing whatever kid thing you're doing. It's a different sort of living than in the United States where immediately you see potential in your child and you want to develop it and send them to art classes or whatever. No, you're just a child playing around and, 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 uh, everyone thinks it's silly. No one really took it that seriously, uh, you know, except for my father. My father was always very encouraging, taking me to all my, my art shows and, and things like that.
0: What were you thinking that you wanted to be at that point in your life when you got older?
2: Yeah, when I was a little boy, I wanted to be, you know, many different things. Policeman, fireman, the typical things that a kid wants to be. It's only when I got maybe into junior high or high school that I, I decided I wanted to be an architect. I was very good at in math, science, and, and all of that, and, uh, and in art. And then um, everyone just kept telling me, you know, going to architecture, you'd be a very good architect. And, and, and that's that was my focus. Until I got an internship in an architecture firm, <laughs> my senior year of high school. And what and made I, you
0: change your mind? I just
2: realized it was it was not for me. It was an awful sort of um, not not myself. Even the architects were telling me this is awful. You don't want to do this. <laughs> really? Yeah. There's no work. Uh, Nothing's predictable.
0: So you become an illustrator instead when there's so much work and everything is predictable. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I figured if I wasn't going to make any money, I might as well be an artist, which is what I really wanted to do. Uh, I was headed to go to architecture school and then and then at the last minute changed my mind uh, and went into uh, more of a visual arts path.
0: You came to the U.S. at nine years old during the Mariel Boatlift exodus, as I mentioned in the introduction. When you learned you were going to move to the United States, how did you feel?
2: We didn't, I didn't know I was going to move to the United States. I was actually not told. <laughs> I was told we were going to go visit my family in the United States. And it was a really tense time. There, was a, there were a lot of things going on. And one of the things that, that was happening was that kids were telling their teachers that they were going to leave. Um, and the, le- the teachers would go snitch on the, on the Communist Party headquarters. And the headquarters would go you know, arrest the, the, the parents. There was a lot of tension going on. So my parents' uh, main concern uh, was that me or my sister would would tell our teachers or tell people at school and that the ball would kind of get rolling around town. And then when that happens, you have squads of people show up at your house that want to beat you up. Um, Or worse? Yeah, the government would send people to do all sorts of things. So they didn't tell me, and um, at some point... And they no, they just said we're we're gonna go visit your uncle and, and your cousins, and I just kind of went along with it. So,
0: in order to get here, your aunt chartered a sixty-eight foot shrimp boat called the Nature Boy. A photojournalist was aboard the ship, as were convicts that the Cuban government forced your family to take out of the country. And years later, you found a photo of yourself arriving in the United States in the Time Magazine archive. How vividly do you remember the experience?
2: We were um, in a camp uh, for about a, a week's time. We were taken from our house on a uh, like military jeep. They confiscated our house. They took us in a jeep um, into um, basically this field where we were held for about a week. And, and there there's a lot of things that, that happened there. Were you scared? Yeah, yeah. It was the first time, you know, I saw military dogs, German shepherds. I mean, you uh, thought
0: you were going to visit family, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> At some point I realized, wait, where's my family? So, yeah, there were, you know, like uh, a lot of uh, um, uh, military with bayonets, dogs getting sicked on prisoners in the middle of the night. It's the first time I saw my mom naked, you know, because when we went through the search, they took our clothes off to search her completely. So uh, I, lately I've been interviewing my family about all of this to try to match my memories with what they what they know. So uh, because I'm writing a book about all of this. So um, at that time, uh, we went to a camp for about a week, and the issue was that once you were in this camp, you were kind of in limbo. You could be taken out of the camp at any moment and sent back to your town, and you wouldn't have a house anymore or a job or anything. So that was my uh, why my father was so tense there, because they were taking fathers out, beating them up, bringing them back into the camp. And uh, um, finally, one day, they called our name. And uh, by that time, I had set up a baseball team in the camp, so I didn't want to leave. <laughs> we, we had regular Always baseball the games. the creator, huh? <laughs> yeah. my, uh, and I was like, I don't want to leave. I got my friends here. And then my dad's like, you're crazy. Get out of here. Let's go. So uh, then we were taking on a bus onto the ship. And uh, once we were in a ship, that's when we saw our cousins finally.
0: Do you and, recall landing in Key West?
2: Uh, yeah. Then, you know, they loaded the boat. With prisoners, uh, the boat took off around 10 p.m., and then we sailed all night, and uh, I, I slept all night, and then in the morning around 6 or 7, uh, I was awakened by the sunlight, and uh, I remember seeing the, the keys, uh, sort of smaller keys started appearing, and then we landed, they pulled us off the boat, and uh, we were welcomed by U.S. immigration and uh, put into... Um, like a refugee center there where we were fed and given clothes and lots of toys. I remember that there were piles and piles of toys that were donated, piles of soda, food, all sorts of things. And and that's the one thing I remember the most is how everything was just gleaming, like everything was bright um, and so much of everything.
0: When you first arrived in Florida, you didn't speak any English, and you've said that your art was your way of communicating. At that point, what kinds of things were you trying
2: Well, there were uh, times where, you know, you would get picked on at lunch, you know, and and, I remember kids would steal my lunch for some reason, uh, and I didn't know what to say. Or if I needed help from another kid, I I would sketch out, you know, a boy hit me. (laughs) Or, you know, it was just basic communication uh, done through drawing, uh, um, like cartoons, to try to explain to the teacher, to the kids what what happened. But um, that was that summer. And that was like a summer school, and it was all with um, English-speaking kids for the most part. The next fall, we were all—this entire population, basically, that arrived in Miami, we were all put together into classes. So my third-grade class was uh, refugees that had just arrived from Cuba, and we were third-graders placed into a junior high.
0: <laughs> Interesting. And in, in,
2: in they had empty classrooms that uh, basically were where we were taking our classes, were so— you were all of a sudden mixed up with uh, older kids as a third grader, but that that was what they had to do at the time.
0: In some ways, do you see your art as communication as essential in the development of your ability?
2: Yeah, yeah. I I, I think that that is basically what, what I've always done, Every, you know, from that point forward. It, um, it's a communication tool. I see most of everything that I do as communicating, and the art is sometimes secondary. <laughs> it's strange. <laughs>
0: After two short years living in the United States, having come to this country, not being able to speak a word of English, you became an English language spelling bee champion. (laughs) How on earth did you accomplish that?
2: Um, I have no idea. I think it was just that I, I, I had a very visual memory, and I would get these lists, and I would just memorize words, and it was like a photographic memory, so yeah i beat every kid in my class i beat every kid in the school actually not in the school in the school i remember peter beat me i still remember him and then me and him went into the the uh, championship yeah yeah uh but yeah that's when i uh i realized it was much harder (laughs) (laughs) it's extraordinary yeah
0: in Cuba, your father was a photographer, in addition to a restaurant manager and a taxi driver, and those just a few of his jobs. He had yeah. a lot of jobs. Early on in the U.S., he had a trucking company, and he'd tell you that you had to study or you'd end up like him, which influenced your passion and your drive. Did it bother you that he didn't want you to be like him?
2: No, no, he would say that every day. He usually would say it when it was the worst time of the day so that it really made an impact you know, we were on the side of a road in a ditch trying to pull something out and it wouldn't it wouldn't come out and he'd be there for an hour and he's like don't you know go to schools you don't have to do this garbage and it it stayed with me you know uh, he's he's always looking for for something better and um, he's the crazy one that would just go on a limb to do something and it was really his idea to leave Cuba because um, we were, yeah you know, as bad as things were, things things were okay, you know, and my, my mom was very comfortable, and I asked my mom, Leo, what made you get on a boat, you know, and it was really my father just constantly kind of going after her and saying, we have to leave, we have to leave. So uh, he's always been the one, and even when I wanted to leave Miami to come to New York, he's the one that took me to the airport. You know, your mom wouldn't even go, right? My mom would right? not go to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> she,
0: she went from Cuba to the United States, but she wouldn't take the <laughs> no, trip to the airport. No, she,
2: she holds a grudge. Uh, she didn't want yeah. you to leave? No, no. So he took me to the airport. He gave me cash when I got on the plane. And um, yeah, he's always like that, kind of a bit of a dreamer and, and to go for things. So.
0: And that was your first plane ride, I believe, yeah,
2: right? Yeah, that was the first time. I was 18 and I took a plane ride to New York City uh, for the first time, first time on a plane.
0: Now, going back to high school for a minute, you entered a cover art scholarship competition that was sponsored by Time Magazine. And you not only won first place, you also nabbed a free subscription, which was your first magazine subscription ever, from what I understand. You know everything. <laughs> <laughs> I try, I try. So, so tell us about the cover that you... Um, where can we see this image?
2: Actually, I have a photograph of it at home. Uh, yeah, there was this competition. I, my parents hadn't saved anything for college, um, so I started in high school looking for anything, any opportunities where I could get money uh, for college. And one of them was this scholarship competition from Time magazine that, that my art teacher handed to me. So I created a cover concept, which was about the environment, and uh, there's a nice image of, of a beautiful landscape, and there's a hand coming down, tearing it apart, and behind it is are, like, nuclear plants and things like that. And I sent it to the competition. I heard back that I won, and I got some scholarship money from Time Magazine.
1: For, I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, that's yeah.
2: Amazing. And then at the same time, it was eleventh grade, probably, uh, and uh, I got an automatic subscription to Time, and and I started getting it every week. And and we never we didn't have any magazines at my house, so that was the only magazine that I would ever look at was Time Magazine. Yeah, I I I, I loved it. I became obsessed with Time. And the graphics in it and illustrations and, and all of that. And what's funny is you have this weird connection, constant connection to Time Magazine because I won that. And then years later, when I started working at Time Magazine, I, I mentioned it to my um, the art director at the time. And he's like, well, oh, I was the judge on that.
0: <laughs> oh, wow.
2: So I brought him the – and he's like, oh, I remember your image. Yeah. Um, so –
0: We'll have to make it available for our sure, listeners yeah, yeah. To, to be able to see mm-hmm. uh, what it what it looked like. Um, after graduating high school, you turned down a full ride at the University of Miami to attend Pratt. Mm-hmm. Why?
2: I got a full scholarship to go to the University of Miami for art, and uh, I was re- set to go. And then my uh, my high school art teacher, who had a lot of influence over where I went and what I did, and she she brought me literally to the portfolio day. She drove me there. Uh, she kind of took care of me. She, 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 I was really the most talented kid in her class, so she wanted me to do something with it. So she arranged for me to meet a former student of hers that, had, that was a Pratt student. He came back to high school, and he spoke to me and told me everything about Pratt, told me that I should come visit. So um, that was the first trip. I went and visited Pratt during uh, spring uh, weekend, and I stayed with him, and he showed me New York City. He took me to the Guggenheim, the Met, and I was just... You know, going crazy. I, I couldn't believe what New York City was. So once I had been here for a weekend, I just said, I'm not going to Miami. <laughs> I'm not going to University of Miami. I have to figure out a way to get up there. So I started um, just harassing the financial aid person at Pratt every week. I just said, I really want to go there, but but I have a full scholarship to the University of Miami. What can you guys do? So I became like a hustler with my admissions people. I, I negotiated it down from, you know, I think it was like 25000 that I would have to pay. And at the end of the day, uh, they said, okay, finally, we've worked out a deal with all your grants and all this, All you have to pay is $1,000 each semester. And that's when I went. That I hadn't told anything to my parents. And finally, when I had it down to 1000 I went and talked to my parents. And they said, are you crazy? We don't have that money. <laughs> 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 so I don't know but what. You
0: the Time Magazine scholarship <laughs> money. Yeah, like, I right? think right?
2: I think I actually took like a loan for just $1,000 or something. Yeah, it just became a big sort of uh, problem at my house, uh, arguing with my mother, and, and they just didn't want me to leave. They're very they, they really felt like we had left Cuba, and that was a big deal. And to, to have me leave the family again was not, uh, not what my mom wanted, uh, basically. And uh, I, I said, "Oh, I'll be back in three years. I'll, I'll do it quickly." Mm, how many years ago? Yeah, was Yeah, I don't know, twenty-eight or something. And, uh, yeah,
0: they're okay now with it.
2: No. <laughs> my, my father doesn't care. My, my, my mother, my mother is, I, she's very dramatic in a funny way.
0: I read that you once visited the Society of Illustrators and looked at all of the names on the wall and figured you'd have to change yours, change your name, to fit the anglicized mold of the names that were there. When did you start feeling that way?
2: I don't know i I guess when my name started appearing on the walls or something I think there's something you know when you're young, you're always looking for people that are like you that are doing uh what you want to do um and uh at the time i was, I was like what would i we e r Alonso, or what would I? <laughs> and and that was a thinking you know but and i had i just have a very funny sounding name so
0: you now teach at the School of Visual Arts, mm-hmm. and I know you take quite an interest in young illustrators today. Do you feel like the diversity of the field is beginning to change?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think I think it started changing uh, a long time ago, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Um, it, it started changing quite a bit for a lot of different reasons. I think the internet changed that because um, you have... All of a sudden, artists and illustrators from other countries could start working in the American market. So so the names and, and the diversity started happening a lot more. Yeah, it's definitely changed, I think.
0: You started working at Time Magazine as a temp. You started as a temp, and then you worked your way up to becoming a designer. How did you first get the opportunity to temp?
2: When I was at Pratt Institute, I was studying, and um, my my last year of school, my English teacher there said, um, you guys that are graduating, if you need a, a job, my, uh, when you get out, my husband works at time magazine, you should give him a call. I remember those, those words and I just went laying out know, time magazine. <laughs> right. Of course, <laughs> That's that's where Mecca. I've always went. And I was like, I can't believe that someone's telling me this. And, uh, weeks went by, months went by and I just started, uh, I had been applying to a lot of different kinds of jobs and not getting anything. I think I'd called about 60 magazines, 60. Yeah. Um, you know, everything, details, uh, you know, village voice, this, that. You know, I I was kind of um, applying and trying to get into magazines anywhere. um, But my portfolio wasn't quite there. It was basically a portfolio from my college newspaper um, because I had studied painting. I hadn't studied... You also got a
0: master's in fine arts.
2: Yeah, that was right around the same time. So I was more more in in the fine art realm, but I needed a job. So um, I was looking for a design job because it's what I knew at the time. And uh, after being very frustrated, it popped back into my head again, this the time mag this thing that my teacher had said. So I went to the masthead and I looked up her last name to see if it matched someone on the on the list and, and it was Conley and there was someone on the list on the Masthead named Steve Conley. So I just randomly called Time magazine and asked for Steve Conley and told him the story that his wife had mentioned. If we were looking for a job we can call him and I said, I'm looking for a job and he said, Oh come by tomorrow. we'll we'll, we'll let me look at your work. I showed up and, and uh, I had a suit <laughs> and he, he, I remember he la- making fun of me for wearing a suit. And, and then uh, he's like, well, we don't have anything right now for design, but we have uh, someone that, you know, delivers copies around the office. He's going on jury duty. Uh, you could do his job for a couple of weeks. And um, I, I said, sure. And, and I took it, did that for a couple of weeks. And then while I was doing that showed that I could do some design and kept haranguing people to hire me as a designer. And, um, yeah, and then, you know, they liked me and they just kept me on there, just sort of like doing minor uh, design tweaks and things. And and, uh, I got hired permanently about nine months later.
0: 1994, you maintained a successful freelance career as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You hold the distinction of being the magazine's youngest art director for the Canada and Latin America editions. Mm Um, And you said this, I come from a family of very hardworking peasants and farmers, so I don't think office work or drawing is hard labor. I laugh at it sometimes. It's nothing compared to what my parents or grandparents have done, so this keeps it all in perspective. What does it mean now to your parents to see you reach this kind of success in your career?
2: Yeah, no, I think they're very happy and and proud and uh, uh, occasionally confused.
0: <laughs> what are they confused
2: by? Uh, just the things that I do sometimes, the graphics and the How visuals that I create. Are, like... Yeah. Yeah. Why do I do this? And yeah, my, my, my father is crazy. My father is up for anything, but my mom's concerned sometimes. So she'll, she'll like call me and he's like, "What well, do you have, well, don't go that far. What are you doing? Um, yeah, I think, I think there's when you, you've lived in a place like that, there's always something in the back of your mind that someone's watching you and someone's making, keeping a record of everything that you're doing and that it you know, you have a good life. Why are you doing this? That that kind of stuff. And, and I've had a few arguments with them, with, with her and, and uh, you know, just sort of explaining that I follow my gut and what I want to do. I don't really think about repercussions. I just, I just do what I want to do. Well, I
0: guess that's why James Victoria considers you the most dangerous man in the world right now. Let's uh, <laughs> let's talk about some of your covers. Your cover for Newsweek, what Silicon Valley thinks of women. That issue won a National Magazine Award, and it also stirred up a fair amount of controversy. Prior to that, your work appeared on the cover of Communication Arts. It showed Che Guevara with a Nike swoosh on his hat and Apple earbuds, which is a bit like blasphemy to the people in Mm -hmm. Cuba. And then, of course, there's your amazing Trump covers for Time, which landed you on Ad Age's 50 Most Creative People of the Year list in 2016, alongside Frank Ocean, Prince, Tom Ford, David Bowie, and Beyonce.
2: How ridiculous is that, right? Well,
0: I think it's kind of amazing. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. How do you feel about all this press?
2: Um, I'm just always shocked by all of it. I'm surprised by anything that happens in my life on a regular basis. So I'm always telling friends or asking someone, like, is, is this really happening? Is this, you know, am I on this list with these people? Am I doing this? Is this, you know, because it's really um, strange to me. It's exciting and it's fun. Um, and it's it actually what I've learned is... How sometimes simple it is to to get to places where you never dreamed you'd be at if you just kind of work and show it and and be open, not be scared, say speak your mind, confront problems, confront people that you think are, are not good for society. You know, so when you're honest, people just get a vibe off it and they just want to uh, be near that or be close to that, uh, and that's that's what I try to do with my work.
0: Let's talk about the Time magazine cover from 2016, the meltdown cover. Mm-hmm. It showed an illustrated Trump literally melting. How did you come up with the idea?
2: I'd been doing sort of um, these kinds of uh, images that were the face or something is kind of falling down or falling apart. I had been doing it a few times. I actually did it with um, a portrait of Gaddafi for Newsweek after they killed him. And it was very similar, this sort of graphic of things melting down. And uh, the uh, art director of Time, D.W. Pine, called me and said, "Hey, I have an idea. <laughs> it's actually like kind of like his idea with my stuff," and and the way I work with D.W. is like that. He knows my vocabulary, knows my things and he's like we have a headline it's called meltdown we want a face of him melting down it was it was not that complicated and i just followed along and then you know we we worked on it together and, you know the trick was to making it making it work you know because you can do a face that has a bunch of details you can do all and i really wanted it to just focus on 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 his mouth and it was all about him screaming and that's really what got him in trouble all the time was this he can't stop talking so I uh, I did this uh, the image and I actually thought when I turned it in that it would just never be published, Why? which happens very much at Time Magazine. At the time, it was in the middle of the election, and and um, there's always a sense of being conservative around the time of election and being neutral, or whatever. But Trump had gone so far and done and said so many awful things. That even Time Magazine had turned on him, <laughs> and not not turned on him, but but just wanted to really show what was going on. Um, it was it was so out there. It was at the time that he was making fun or mocking the the family of the Muslim Gold soldier, star yeah. Family. yeah. Gold star family. I always turned my artwork in, and I just detach and I and I don't you know see what happens. And then I started hearing um, that it was published uh, on the internet, and I'm like, oh wow, they published it. I actually never heard from back from the art director yeah it it, it was made a
0: cover that was heard around the world, and I think it ushered in a really new phase of illustration work on magazine covers, much stronger, much more direct,
2: um much more brutal, yeah, that's the right word. <laughs> brutal. <laughs> the danger that we were facing and that we are occasionally still facing in this country is this neutrality. this this oh, both sides are have their own point of view. We need to listen to both sides. That kind of thing, which liberals practice very, um, very well. You know, it's, it's this very thing of, of, oh, let's just listen. Let's let's, you know, uh, they have concerns. Let's listen to that. Or uh, he said this. Let's listen to it and take into account. But I really got it got to a point where I felt you needed to confront this. It was, it, you know, it, it was basically fascism in the United States. And you don't appease fascists. You really do confront it uh, as strongly as possible. And that's what I what I wanted to do with that cover. You know, b- making him orange is a very strong visual. He, you know, it, it's taking what he kind of looks like and then tweak it e- even more. So I wanted that strength. It was just nice to have the backing of the magazine because once that Time magazine does that, then everybody else is like, oh, okay, we can do it too. <laughs> we can confront this in, in, in the same way. What I had been doing for about six months before was to... Do this stuff on my own. Do these graphics on my own, and put them out there. I've been doing things on Twitter and Facebook, and all these art directors at these magazines follow my work. So I was trying to sort of change the the mentality, or and create sort of a brand of Trump as as this as what I what he really was, and I was just kind of waiting for <laughs> magazines or clients to catch up, or waiting to, for a moment where I could stick it into into the sketch phase or or send it to a client and it happened it started happening about 6 months or a year after i was working so i was doing this kind of stuff during the primaries
0: so you were doing it you were self generating the work and then yeah. it it
2: yeah and a lot and that that was the idea attention. that was the idea about 2 years earlier i had done a similar campaign on isis where i i felt what was happening with isis was so strong and nobody was really covering it with strength and and i started doing this work about isis and being very strong mostly on the internet and at some point, I started getting hired to do this, this ISIS work for the New York Times and for a bunch of other places. I've been working with these publications for, for such a long time. You, you do your sketches, you get to a point, and they're like, whoa, 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 that's, that's too much, that's too strong, and it, it gets dialed back. So I was trying to find a way to subvert that process. And the way I found was to get ahead of it, put things out um, myself myself have fan base or people on the internet sharing, commenting. And when it becomes so big, all of a sudden clients want a part of that, which is what I found over the last two years, roughly, is is a different way of of working.
0: Did you go to time with the total meltdown follow-up or did they come to you and ask you
2: to do it? (laughs) No, that was... Because that that made
0: it even more brilliant. No,
2: that was also uh, them. That was also... uh, It was at a point where uh, it was a funny week. Um... The Hollywood um, reporter, uh, Hollywood I forget, um How, Access, Access Hollywood, Hollywood tape had come yeah. out. And um, I got another call from the art director, DW, and he said, Hey, we want you to do a similar thing, but do the GOP logo melting down. And I was like, That's kind of weird, you know, like just repeating as a GP logo. And I tried it, I sent it to them, and they held on to it, and I never heard back until Wednesday morning at 10, which is their publication day. The E.W. calls. Hey, (laughs) we decided we've gone through everything. We want to do a total meltdown cover. Take your your image and just splash it all the way down. And I was like, okay, when's the deadline? Uh, Noon. So it was a two-hour deadline to create this new piece of art. And uh, I started frantically sketching and trying to figure out how to do that. It was actually uh, for me it was difficult to to do that compression and do do it well. Um, so I, I think I sent it around 10, 1145 or something. And and then he's like, well, let's rewrite, let's rework it. I'm like, we have no time. (laughs) So they were treating it like a regular, you know, assignment where we tweak things. And then finally I was able to resolve it and, um, and it came out the next day. Yeah. But a lot, you know, time definitely gets a lot of credit for writing the headlines and sort of like, uh, working with me on, on, on these things.
0: I read that you'd much rather not be creating work about Trump. Mm Mm-hmm. How do you manage to look at that face as much as you have to look at it?
2: I don't really look at him. I don't really look at pictures of him. It's like all just symbols and graphics in my head. I usually spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you know, on something. If it's a cover or, or 10 something. or 15 minutes? Yeah, on, on a daily thing, like something I might put on the internet. Uh, it, it's very fast actually uh, if it's a cover then definitely I'll, I'll spend more time tweaking it and things like that uh, um, you know I could maybe do something in three or four hours you know part of the reason there's no visual cues that it, that it seems that I don't want to draw his eyes and his nose and get involved in all of this stuff that I have friends that, that have painted him I'm like, yeah hey, Barry I, Blit can do that Yeah, <laughs> 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 how could you like sit there and like render his his, his face I just can't do it I, I wouldn't do it so uh, um For me, it's more of an object and and a brand, sort of like I've created this this branding and this brand of him, and I can now tweak it and change it, and it's not even him that I'm doing. It's more about, it's anti-branding. It's creating a brand and then doing everything to destroy it, basically.
0: Let's talk about your Der Spiegel cover, because Mm -hmm. as intense and riveting as the Meltdown and Total Meltdown covers are and were, your Der Spiegel cover went even further. Uh, You created an image of Trump... Beheading the Statue of Liberty, mm-hmm. it went viral, and you actually said that it was pretty hilarious that a drawing was making the world go nuts. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with that idea? How did Der Spiegel first uh, respond to the to the drawing? Was there trepidation? And what's happened in the aftermath?
2: Well, I mean, it, it was—it's definitely been the one image that has created the most controversy, most uh, um, coverage. Uh, It went on for, like, two months of press, uh, you know, coming to my studio, interviews. It's still happening, you know, about a year later.
0: I mean, that's a heart-stopping illustration.
2: Good. (laughs) That's what I wanted. The storyline is that I had created a series of illustrations, probably about 10, uh, you know, kind of taking ISIS to to the max. Um, And I felt that they were doing so many awful things that they were kind of killing themselves. So i created this image that was a an isis terrorist uh with his arms up he has a knife in one hand and his own head in the other and he has no head like he had cut off his own head i did that in 2014. then i was watching the news and the uh muslim ban happened overnight you know as planes were still in the air uh you had planes trying to land there were uh kids that were sent by themselves and uh, they were at the airport and they couldn't get out because they, they they didn't have the permit to come to the country grandmothers that were coming in to have operations and I was thrown back into when I came to the country when I was nine years old, a kid trying to come in and at that time I was welcomed with open arms um, brought in by immigration fed, um and, toys galore. Yeah. And and I remember that. I was like what's happened to my country? This is the the country, you know, this is our dream country. Uh and the Statue of Liberty was it was something that we always talked about in my family. It was like a saint like like it was America, you know. So all these things were just popping into my head as as I was watching TV and I was disgusted by it because to me that's something that Castro would do, something that a you've, dictator you've would. You've
0: compared do. Trump to Castro. Yeah, yeah.
2: That's how Castro and, 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 and uh, the communists in Cuba treated us when we were, uh, wanted to leave the country. We were put in this pen for a week and we were held and anything could happen. And it was this idea of toying with people's lives and emotions that, that uh, really angered me. So out of just anger, I took the ISIS um, uh, terrorist and it was the same figure, the same exact image. Uh, and I just put Trump's head on it and put a Statue of Liberty on his arm. And it was the same knife that the terrorist was holding. And I was making a direct uh, correlation that the real terrorist was Donald Trump. The real person that's affecting lives at that time was uh, Donald Trump. And since it was related to the Muslim ban, that was the connection. You know, Yes, he is an ISIS terrorist, basically, was the, the concept. And um, I posted it on Twitter and on Facebook and all my media channels, and it went nuts. That was my image, you know, I just put it on there. And then about a day or two later, their Spiegel called me and was like, hey, we're doing a cover on the Muslim ban, can you send us some ideas? And I was like, all right, you know, I I did a bunch of other sketches, I don't even know where they are now. And I sent it to them, and didn't hear back, and then the next day they said, oh, nothing's really quite working from this batch, can you go back to it again and, and think of some other ideas? And I was like, all right, you know. And um, then all of a sudden, the next morning, the art director from Der Spiegel calls me and goes, "Hey, we've been looking through your Twitter feed, <laughs> and there's this image, uh, that Trump as a as is an ISIS guy. And we we know is that been published anywhere? I'm like, no. Uh, uh, can we publish that? And I was just like, Are you guys crazy? You seriously want to publish this on your on the cover? And like, yeah, we really like it. And they said, Well, can you just he had a tunic on? Can you change that to?" Uh, Trump's suit so that it looks more like Trump and I remember telling some friends I think something's going to come out tomorrow that's going to cause a big deal I hadn't done it about any other prior covers and I was right as soon as it came out it, it created a big um, splash. Um, the cover was not in and out. And next morning, it was already at protests at the airports. People had just printed it off the Internet. And I have, you know, a bunch of pictures of people well, holding you,
0: up. You, you give people the permission to do that, right? Not at that comments, time. Yeah. But... Now,
2: at that time, I hadn't even thought of that. At that okay. time, it was just people downloaded it off Twitter and yeah. created huge posters to bring to airports and all this kind of stuff. And and it started just a lot of direct messages, a lot, a lot of emails. um, just insults and and all sorts of things and you know calling me a calls it communist you know every insult that you can think of basically i think it's really important to not normalize a lot of this stuff because it's coming at you so fast and so much that it can easily just change and we're seeing it you know fox news which is just basically spouting lies on a constant basis you know we know these things aren't happening so it's like an entire country that's just trying to be gaslighted all the time and I think what I what I do with my work and what people many times react to is they go, "Wow, I'm not crazy." Okay, someone else sees what I saw, made an image about it. Okay, so we're all in this, you know, r- recognizing this reality because we're constantly told by the president and by many other people that that didn't happen. That's not true. That's happened in, in Venezuela, in Cuba, in, in in Russia, in many other countries, and you can't you, we can't let it happen here, and it can.
0: Fast Company has dubbed you the preeminent illustrator of the Trump era. Do you look forward to the day you can stop illustrating him when this is all over?
2: Yeah, uh, sketchbooks and, and a bunch of other things that I want to be painting. But I, if I wake up every day and I'm like, oh, I got to say something about this. And uh, um, but yeah, my, my favorite thing is to, to just be my studio painting and making things that make no sense.
0: You've been involved in illustrating children's books now Mm -hmm. for almost two decades and have written and illustrated two of your own, focused on your penguin character, Sergio. Mm -hmm. You've said that one of your career highlights came when you heard one of your kids, then four, reading the book aloud to herself. And late last year, you told Print Magazine you were working on a kid's biography about Jimi Hendrix And so I'm wondering where that stands and also your own personal illustrated memoir about your life and emigrating to the United States.
2: They've kind of taken like a a little bit of a pause right now. I'm still working on the Jimi Hendrix book. And uh, I'm, yeah, definitely working on on this uh, um, memoir. That's a graphic novel, graphic memoir kind of book. Um, A lot of what we've talked about today and and trying to figure out the structure for it and, and how much of it is about Cuba, about coming here, about being a refugee in America. And now, because of uh, who I am and what's happening now, it, it, it just raised it up even more. So I have to finish it, basically. My agent is mad at me.
0: <laughs> uh, Adele, my last question is about returning to Cuba. In 2014, you went back to Cuba for an exhibition of your own work, which was also the first time your children visited the country. What was it like to return, especially for an exhibition of what you've achieved since leaving? And what did your children think?
2: I've told the curator and the people in Havana that it's my favorite show. It's the best show of my life, basically. Um, It meant that much to me. You know, it's really where my heart is always. It's in Cuba uh, and where a lot of my influences and the music that I listen to and, and, and everything that I miss is, is Cuba all the time and then I was able to go back and, and my, my family from my hometown, my friends were able to come out and see my work for the first time um, and to be on, on that earth having that show it was, it was a big deal and it was wonderful to take my kids and, and, and have them see the town that I that I grew up in, come into my house and, and, and all of that, It was uh, yeah, it was a very powerful show.
0: Well, Adele, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. Thank you so much for putting so much important work out into the world and motivating us to make a difference. Thank you. To see more of Adele Rodriguez's work, you can see his work on Instagram at Adele Rodriguez or on Twitter at Adele Studios. This is the 14th year I have been recording Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: For more information about Design Matters, or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie-Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie-Millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com. You're growing
0: a business, and you can't afford to slow down.